All right, amen. Let's have all the kids come on up that were in children's church the last couple weeks. We've got a song and a verse we want to share with you as a church. So if we could just line up right in front of this table here in a nice straight line. All right, can we scoot down this little bit farther down that way? There we go. Keep going a little bit further, Holly. Keep going, keep going. There we go. All right. So we, over the last couple of weeks, big shocker here, we did our children's church lesson on thankfulness, right? On Thanksgiving. And we had a great time back there with everybody. And we learned a little bit about what Thanksgiving is all about. It's, yeah, a lot of fun to have some turkey. And they talked about all their favorite desserts and a lot of mashed potato fans in this little group right here. Uh, but more importantly, we talked about uh, what God's view of Thanksgiving is. And we went to Psalm 26.7. Can we try to share that verse with them? Yeah, so Psalm 26.7, proclaiming Thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. All right, let's do it one more time. Ready? Psalm 26.7, proclaiming Thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. And uh, we had a great time together. We learned a little song to help us kind of live out that verse in Psalm 26, 7. And it's called, I want to be thankful. I want to be grateful. I want to remember everything that the Lord has done. And so we're going to attempt to sing this song. And we're going to help have a little bit of help with the singing as well with the speaker behind us. But you think you guys can do the hand motions with this as well? Okay, well, I'm going to go in the back here with my wife and we'll help you with the hand motions. And we're going to sing this song together. I like to think about the goodness of the Lord. He gives me everything I need and so much more. Thank you. 
Good job. All right, Psalm 26-7, one more time. Ready? Proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. All right, thanks for your help, kids. You can go ahead and sit down. We have a good time back there in Children's Church. Thankful for Andy and Lisa laying the foundation for our 10 unchangeables. And there were plenty of those 10 unchangeables that we were to be thankful for. And it was great. Some of the kids even mentioned some of those as we were talking about different things they could be thankful for. And as a reminder, we don't just go back there for child care. We try to actually teach them something, right? So we're, we're thankful for that time together with the kids. I hope you enjoyed that. And uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter number 7. John chapter number 7. We uh, basically tackled the first part of this chapter last week. We covered verses 1 through 31. Uh, we had attempted to finish out this chapter this week, but we called an audible uh, and we're actually going to make the second half of chapter 7 into two more messages. So you get me one more week. Uh, so just letting you know that. So hang with me as we finish out this chapter. There's a lot that's going on here as far as dynamics and different truths that we want to make sure we unpack and we understand, as well as connecting this text and we observed the Lord's Supper this morning uh, we just felt like covering 20 verses was going to uh, be a little bit more than we could handle today with everything we had going this Sunday morning. So without further ado, let's open our service in a word of prayer. Just quiet our hearts and our minds as we ask the Lord to prepare our, our hearts, our ears, our minds to receive the word of God. Father, we come to you now uh, just admitting that we need you. Uh, we have nothing to offer you. Uh, we're just beggars um, in need of, of your help. And so, Father, I pray, even as we're here this morning, that you would quiet our hearts, our minds. I know this weekend for, for many was just a very busy uh, few days with friends and family and potentially travel. Just so much going on. But I pray that we would not forget about you, forget about your word, forget about the grace and mercy that you have shown us in Christ. We truly have so much to be thankful and grateful for. And even as Psalm 26 7 tells us that we proclaim Thanksgiving aloud and we just think back of all your wondrous deeds, we have so much that we can uh, proclaim aloud to the nations. And so I pray as we even move into the rest of chapter 7 as we see Christ and we see uh, his offer of salvation, uh, but yet we see also the urgency that he uh, communicates to his crowd as he says, I'll just be with you a little bit longer. Uh, and where I'm going, you cannot come. Father, it's such a sobering reality to think that we have friends and co-workers and neighbors, even sons and daughters that, uh, Father, don't know you don't know Christ, have not uh, received his free gift of salvation. And so, Father, I pray even this morning that we would be um, emboldened, we would be revived, that you would breathe into our cold hearts afresh and anew your life and so that we could um, be motivated as disciples and followers of Christ to take the good news that Jesus saves to a world that so desperately needs it. And so, Father, I thank you for the songs that have been sung 
I thank you for even the testimony of these kids and sharing um, a testimony of song and, and sharing that verse with the congregation. Even as we look into your word, Father, it all points back to you. I pray that you would be glorified, that your name would be lifted high. Father, as a result of being here this morning, we would be changed. We ask all these things in your precious name. Amen. Amen. I don't know about you, but uh, many times uh, as I think back on my life, I've been given specific tasks to complete. Have you ever been told by a boss uh, or maybe even a peer that you work with or maybe it's another authority figure, kids, maybe a teacher at school gives you something specific to do. They say, go do this. Dad tells you kids to go take out the trash and then dad go runs an errand and when he comes back, he expects what? That the trash is taken out, right? Uh, I don't know about you, but many times expectations can sometimes get lost in translation. I remember back in the budding stages of my relationship with my wife, I was trying to think back at the exact time. I think this was our first Valentine's Day together as a couple. We were just dating and I had gotten her a necklace and some flowers pretty typical things, right, that guys get for girls. And then, you know, but for girls, what do, what do girls really get guys for Valentine's Day? That's kind of a tough one, right? You know, I was maybe expecting some cologne, maybe some, you know, home-baked goodies or some chocolate or something like that. But we are exchanging our gifts, and Christina says, I've got to go get your gift, right? And the anticipation, the excitement of what she's going to bring me, you know, it was, it was exciting. And she comes around with this clear vase with some type of fern growing out of top of it and something swimming inside of this vase. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, what's, what do we got here? You know, I needed some explanation or some background. She got me a fish, and apparently there's a thing called a love fern. I, I don't know, ladies, if you know what that is. But anyway, so she gets me a fish and a fern. I'm not really sure why. That's maybe a for another time and place during marriage counseling. We can figure that out. I don't know. But she gets me this fish in a fern, and obviously the expectation on her side was that I was going to do what with this fish and this fern? Yeah, wow, but more importantly, I was going to keep them, what, alive? Yeah? She helped me on the fern. She literally stuck it in a vase of water, so I was okay on the fern. I couldn't mess that part up. But this fish, you have to remember to do what? To... Feed it. You gotta put some of those flakes in there and you gotta keep it alive and apparently you gotta clean that thing out every once in a while and some other things change the water out. You know, I, I don't know what I'm doing. It's a fish and I'm in a guy's dorm and that was the only live thing in a guy's dorm, right? It definitely freshened up our room, but I can remember I was going off to spring break for a baseball trip and loaded the bus and we get about halfway down to Florida and I realize the fish is in the dorm room. Nobody else is in the dorm. And I'm going to be gone for literally two weeks. That's kind of a problem, right? So big shocker here. Sad story. I came back to a not-so-healthy fish um, that was dead, unfortunately. Sad story, but I gave it a very respectful and appropriate ceremony that ended down a trip down the porcelain throne. Right. And but but her expectation now is that I've got to break this news to her that, you know, I had this tension. I could 
act, literally lie and pretend like I still had this fish alive, or I could just break it to her and say, hey, you know that fish you gave to me on our first Valentine's Day that lasted all of a month? (laughs) It's no longer with us. And I failed. She had one expectation. She gave me this gift of a live fish and a live fern, and I failed, right? I I didn't do what she had told me to do. I didn't meet her expectations of keeping this fish alive. And apparently, that's supposed to be a sign that the relationship isn't going to last, apparently, but it did. You know, we're here 11 years later. 11 years? Yeah, 11 years later. Just kidding. I knew it was 11 years, right? 11 years later, we're still together despite killing the love fish or whatever you want to call it, right? So help me here, bridge my illustration, maybe not that great, but we have some missed expectations here in this passage. Look with me at John chapter 7, verse number 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? Verse 46, the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. So here we have these dynamics that are going on in our passage. Right? This is where our text picks up. The Pharisees have gotten wind of the grumbling, the muttering of the crowds in regard to who Jesus was and is. And for fear of losing more ground on their pharisaical religious establishment of the day, they decided to raise the stakes to take matters into their own hands. They send officers to arrest him. So no more talk, no more plotting, no more planning, no more talking about taking this Jesus guy out. They just said, let's do it. So these officers had one job, just as I had one job. They were sent out by these authorities and these Pharisees to simply arrest Jesus, to squelch any potential uprising that may be brewing as this feast of the tabernacles comes to a close. And big shocker here, the officers return empty-handed. They failed to complete the one task they were given, But their response, or literally their excuse in verse 46, no one ever spoke like this man. Their response to the Pharisees as to why they have failed, it literally will become the pinnacle of this passage. It's the hinge upon which the context before and the context after will be hung upon. They claim again, no one ever spoke like this man. I'm entitled this message this morning, A Timeless message for a divisive crowd. We're going to look at two simple basic points from our text this morning. First, we're going to see Jesus' message and mission explained. And then secondly, we're going to see Jesus' message and mission causes a clear division. So let's pick up our text in verse number 32. It says this, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? When the guards arrived on the scene, they find Jesus engaged in another opportunity to teach 
and to preach of these spiritual truths. As a result, these guards will fade into the background for the present, and they do not emerge until we get all the way back down into verse 45, right? So do you, you get the scene there? Are you there with Jesus and the crowd, and he's teaching, he's in this dialogue with this crowd, and the guards are there to do what? Arrest him. And you think they're just going to slip in, get the job done, arrest him, take him back to the Pharisees, just as they were told as officers, and it would be done and over. But yet there was something unique about Christ that these officers observed. So they go to arrest him and they say, wait a second. I'm going to listen a minute. I'm going to think a minute about who this guy is and let's just observe. So other officers, let's just kind of step back and let's see what's going on here. This is where we pick up. So first of all, the first aspect of his mission explained, we see that his mission involved a destination or we could call it a goal. We see that unique aspect or literally shift in the teaching moment in Christ that we've seen in the chapters prior. When Christ was revealing himself to the crowds, he always talked about where he came, what? From. He came from the Father. And that was his claim on deity. But here in chapter 7, we see a shift in the conversation, not from where you came from, but now where are you going? Right? So he's using now this aspect of my time is drawing near. I'm with you just a little bit longer. And he raises the stakes and he's saying, hey, I've already told you where I came from. But now I'm going to make another claim of deity as God to say that, hey, I'm on earth, human flesh, and now I'm going to go up. I'm going to ascend up back to the Father, the one who has sent me. So this becomes his destination or his goal. So it's not about his origin, but really it's about his destination. And it's a shift in the conversation. So the point was that Jesus had a destination or a goal in mind. And the Jews would not be able to share in it. We see two times in verses 34, 35, and 36, this phrase, you will seek me and will not find me. He states it in verse 34, and then the crowd is mulling this over in their mind. Again, it's, it's another affront in their perception of who God is. The crowd is grappling with what is he saying here? You will seek me and you cannot find me. Where I go, you cannot come. So this crowd is, is once again confused in their understanding of this message and mission that Jesus is explaining to this crowd. But not only does his mission involve a destination or goal, but secondly, his message and mission involved a sense of timing or urgency. Right, we see that in verses 33 and 34. This departure theme is introduced by Jesus. Jesus' reference to this phrase, a little longer. Do you see it there? In verse 33, Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer. This should have been a cue for them to understand that Jesus was on his final leg of his mission. He came on a mission to what? Seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus' emphasis then on timing highlights that decision making is imperative. Jesus is stepping out Again, from the shadows, after them being confused in this crowd and the grumblings and the muttering and the stirring of confusion that's happening in the Jewish crowd. And he's telling them, look, I've revealed myself to you. I've told you I am the bread of life. Take and eat. 
And he's going to continue that theme and he's going to say, hey, come to me, drink and never thirst again. He's revealed himself over and over and over again. He's done signs, miracles and wonders. He's revealed himself as God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us. But yet what? The Jews are blind to this reality of who Jesus is and why he came. And so this sense of urgency is growing. Jesus' emphasis on timing highlights that decision-making is imperative. He's calling the fence-sitters to come to a decision. Am I who I am claiming to be or not? And this crowd was confronted with this question. And that question spans all of humanity to us as well, past, present, and future. We must answer that same question in relation to who Jesus is. Am I? who I'm claiming to be or not. Thirdly, his message and mission offered life through his person and work. Offered life through his person and work. We see this in verses 37, 38, and 39. There's just some technical details in regards to the Feast of the Tabernacles that we dove into a little bit last week as we introduced the beginning part of the passage, but I want to again lay some groundwork around this water ceremony that Jesus is going to use as his contextual platform to reveal himself once again to the crowd as Savior and Lord. So these next three verses, verse 37, 38, and 39 of the Gospel of John draw our attention to one of the most memorable parts of the festival or feast of tabernacles. It's on the the final day of the ceremony where they would have this water ceremony and these prayers for rain. What did water represent? It represented life. It represented provision. It represented um, opportunity to grow in an agricultural society. So there was a lot of meaning and purpose behind the, the water part of the Feast of Tabernacles. So here on this final day, each of the seven days prior to the final day, priests drew water from the pool of Shalom and and, uh, carried a golden pitcher full of water to the temple and then around the altar with the high priest leading the way. As a priest neared the water gate, the shofar would be blown and then psalms of praise and thanksgiving were sung to God for what? The harvest. And you look back into the Psalms and typically those, those praise songs that would have been sung were Psalm 113 to 118. You go back and look at those and, and they're just, they're, they're, they're joyous songs of celebration as, as they're uh, songs of thanksgiving to the Lord for His provision and providing for them over the days. And we think of the Feast of the Tabernacles again. They were to look back of God's provision as He brought them out of the land of Egypt and specific to water. How through uh, through a work of a power and great provision, water came from the rock. So again, in a great display of cultural teaching and preaching, Jesus is using this water ceremony as an opportunity to once again make his offer of life available to the world. Let's read verse 37, 38, and 39. It says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out. I love those two words. Jesus wasn't making anything unclear. He wasn't hiding his purpose. Despite all the presuppositions, 
that the crowd would have, that they would try to place on Christ to be this great uh, deliverer of the oppressive Roman Empire, Jesus was once again saying, this is why I came. This is why I came, not why you think I should have come. He's making it clear. He's crying out and he says what? If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. I love these two words in these three verses. It draws my attention back to John 3. We see the word anyone in verse 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And then verse 38, whoever believes in me. Does that not make you just automatically go back to John chapter 3 and the exchange with Nicodemus? Let's do that quickly. John chapter 3. We see that in verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Again, John 3, verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has descended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world through him, uh, through, uh, in order that the world might be saved through him. So here we have again these verses of the anyone's and the whoever's that draws our attention back to this exchange at Nicodemus that we'll see come up next week as we finish out chapter seven. But we see in these verses, Jesus is claiming to be the fulfillment of all that this feast of the tabernacles Signified all that it pointed back to and all that it anticipated. Jesus is the one true Messiah who provided the outpouring of the Holy Spirit once the time comes and his mission is completed. But friends, we go back to this confrontation of the perception of who Jesus is and the crowd's response. I came across uh, in Mere Christianity uh, a few lines of his book that I felt uh, are very appropriate in regards to this discussion around our response to Jesus as Savior and Lord. So if you'll bear with me, I'm going to read just a few verses, or excuse me, a few lines from mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the real foolish thing that people often say about him, speaking of Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. All right, think about this. What did Jesus say? What did he claim to be? 
He said, I am the bread of life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus didn't just come to be a good prophet or a great moral teacher. He came to reveal himself as God. And so C.S. Lewis goes on and he says, he did not come to just be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. C.S. Lewis goes on, he says, You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let, not, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to be a great moral teacher. He intended to be God. All right? He intended to be God. Nothing less than God. So here we have this great confrontation as Jesus has come on the scene and he's challenging this perception of the Jewish mindset of who God really is. It's staring at him right in the eyes. God in the flesh. The Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, chosen one, is here. And we start seeing the division arise in our conversation. Just as in the case of the discussion of origin, where Jesus came from. So here, in the case of the goal or destination, where Jesus is going, the discussion took place on two levels, the earthly and the heavenly, or we could call it spiritual. Clearly, once again, the Jews are what? They're stuck in the mud of the earth. They're not connecting the dots of what Christ is saying. I've come down from heaven. I am going back to the Father. Where I'm going, you cannot be. They are not connecting the dots that this man speaking is saying that he is God. And his time with them is drawing to an end. And so therefore, make a decision. Am I Christ or am I not to you? This is what Jesus is calling out to them. The second point of our text this morning is Jesus' message and mission causes clear division. We see this in verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. So we're going to see, first of all, the division among the crowd. And then next week, we're going to look in detail the division among the Pharisees. The division among the crowd started in verse 40, where some say that he is what really is a Prophet. This would have been alluding back to Deuteronomy 18.15. In the last days, God would raise up a prophet like Moses. And so they hear the teaching, and they hear the preaching, and they hear the uniqueness of Christ and all that's gathered around Him. And they say, yep, this is the prophet that has risen up. Verse 41, it goes on to say, what others said, this is the Christ. So some come to the right conclusion. He is the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. We know this is why John wrote our gospel in chapter 20, verse 31. He says, these things are written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have what? Life in His name. 
So we have some say he's a prophet, some say this is the Christ, the Son of God. And then we see at the end of verse 41, it goes on to say what? But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So in verse 41 and 42, some say this can't be the Messiah. Some recognize, yeah, there's something unique about him. There's something special about how he's teaching and preaching. But for some reason, some in this crowd did not know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. They only knew of Jesus being from what? Galilee. So they dismiss him as unqualified as the Messiah. But verses 43 and 44 summarize this division and it says this. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Do we not see the hostility and the uncertainty and the question marks surrounding Jesus' person and work growing as we work our way through chapter 6 and chapter 7. Right? Let's go back to chapter 6. Uh, let's look at verses, uh, verse 29. Uh, verse 28, excuse me. Then he said to him, what, will we, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered him, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. So he said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you do perform? Our fathers and man. So, so they're questioning Jesus all the way back in chapter six, verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. Verse 52, the Jews, the Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? We see in uh, verse 61, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them. We get into chapter 7, all the way back in verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Verse 20 of chapter 7, the crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Again, the public perception of Jesus is is crumbling. Verse 25 of chapter 7. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. They're just beside themselves that this man continues on and nobody's stepping in to take action. Verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. Verse 43. Again, we get back here. There was a clear division among the people, can you not see the cascade effect of going at the beginning of chapter six? They're ready to crown him and make him king. And Jesus refused to fit into their box. And so it all comes crumbling down and the crowds are starting to turn on Christ. And their perception of who he is and why he came is completely irrelevant to them. They just want to take this Jesus out. Some of them, again, wanted to arrest him and kill him, but no one, interesting, no one laid hands on him just yet in verse 
44, because why his time had not yet come. So observing the tense dynamics and not wanting to risk any public uproar, the officers returned to the chief priests and Pharisees ready to offer their professional assessment. This is it. No one ever spoke like this man. These officers knew what going back empty-handed could mean for them. Their officers, they were told by their superiors to go complete a task. He didn't come back without that task being completed. They could have offered all kinds of different excuses. Look, you, look, uh, public authorities, uh, Pharisees, you don't know what we saw over there. This is, I mean, it's just about to cross over into a complete public uproar. They could have made all these kinds of different excuses about why they didn't come back empty-handed. The cultural tension the divisions, whatever it was, but that wasn't their excuse that they gave to the Pharisees. Their assessment was that no one ever spoke like this man. They came back essentially disobeying a direct order to do what? Take Jesus and arrest him. There's a uniqueness about the message that Jesus shared. As we look back on verses 37, he says, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I wonder, I just wonder if that message resonated with these officers. It's speculation, it's not there in the text, but why would they come back empty handed? Disobey a direct order from these Pharisees and these public authorities. Verse 45 says this, The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees and said to them, Why did you not bring him back? Friends, Jesus offers to us the same life-giving water that he offered to the crowd on the final days of this Feast of Tabernacles. This question remains still today. Will we believe Jesus is who he said he was and take this life-giving water and never thirst again? Or, or will we be like the Pharisees, as we'll see next week, and others like ourselves even today that continue to grasp and cling to our own understanding, our own wisdom, our own ways, our own desires and philosophies that we could follow. We're clinging to our own understanding. As a result, we'll remain blind, thirsty, and without hope. Friends, I pray today that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to the truth of who Jesus is. And as a result, we would be eternally changed. As a result of seeing Christ, the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us, face-to-face, right here in John chapter 7, giving us an invitation to come and drink and never thirst again. That's the invitation that Christ gives to us this morning. And friends, maybe you've accepted Christ as your Lord and personal Savior, but maybe the cares of this world, your own pride, your own understanding, your own way, has dimmed this reality of who Christ is as Savior and Lord. Maybe you're not living for Him as you should. Friends, the gospel is not just relevant for a one-time decision 
or prayer that we make to the Lord for salvation, but rather we must preach the gospel to our cold, sinful heart day after day after day after day and pray that the Holy Spirit would awaken us once again afresh new to the truths that Jesus is a source for life, nothing else. Friends, let's close in a word of prayer as we transition to our communion time and as our worship team comes, as we sing, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the realities of your word. Thank you for Christ as we see the story of his person and work unfold in the gospel of John. We're reminded that the time is short. The sense of urgency is high. Father, what a tragedy it would be that if we would seek Him and we would not find Him, Father, because we waited. Because we did not answer the call to salvation. Father, maybe there's somebody here even this morning who is struggling with sin. The troubles of this world, the cares of this world. Maybe it's trials or circumstances that are clouding out this reality that we've been given so much in Christ, I pray that this text, remembering that his message and his mission was clear and he has given us that invitation to receive him, how exciting and awesome that reality is. And so, Father, as we transition to this um, Lord's table, we have an opportunity to pause and to reflect and to consider our relationship with you. Maybe there's unconfessed sin. Maybe there's relational strife. Maybe there's, again, the cares of the world that are drowning out these beautiful realities of Christ. I pray right now as we even sing the song that we would prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's table. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.
Would you pray and bless the bread as we partake? Heavenly Father, just thank you for sacrificing your body for us on the cross. Pain you endured before then and pain you during. We just know how great a love you showed us, even though we can't comprehend it. Lord. We just thank you so much for it and ask for your blessing upon us that we might.
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Russ, would you ask the Lord to bless the cup? In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we've been given just to pause and to reflect and to remember you, your body representing your person, 
You are God in flesh, holy, the perfect sacrifice. And also to remember your blood, which is your work on the cross. Being that perfect sacrifice, you shed your blood. And without the remission, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And so we thank you for your body, for your blood. And Father, I pray as a church, Liberty Hills Bible Church, as we seek to covenant together to make mature followers of Christ to the glory of God, that we would never waver in our observance of the Lord's table, that it would be the catalyst that draws us deeper into relationship with you, that overcomes struggle and difficulty, circumstance, even sin. So, Father, I pray this morning as we looked into your word, we observed your Lord's table, that we would be changed to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. We ask all these things in your precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. If you want to pass your cups to the center, uh, the deacons will go down and pick those up. Without further ado, we will go ahead and transition to our second hour. Uh, we obviously ran a little bit longer, so I apologize. Uh, those leading the discussion groups, please make sure we stop right at, at noon so we can give our nursery workers the, the due break that they're, they're looking for. So make sure we stop right at noon. Children, if you want to go ahead and head back to the children's hour, uh, we'll go ahead and transition.